0: Good morning, church. <clears throat> um, I have a little bit of a cold, uh, and I, I did get a COVID ch- test, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but it is going to be probably another interesting service, as the, the 8 o'clock certainly was. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And today we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 22. Last week we looked at uh, verses 16 to 18, and it it was three commands that are really easy to understand. I said I could probably just read these commands and go and sit down, and and you would get the point. They are commands impossible to obey in our own strength, but possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. To be honest with you, this week I spent half the week wishing I could just read today's verses to you and then go and sit down and be done with it. Uh, These verses are more difficult to understand. It is a hotly debated passage, even in Reformed circles, and the debate is not dying down anytime soon, probably not before Christ returns. But Paul's words are still important for the church, and I will do my best to handle the word appropriately. Some of the things that we are speaking about today are what we could call open-handed issues, they are issues that we can disagree about and still serve in the same church and still cling to the gospel together. But I want to be faithful to the meaning of the text and also apply it appropriately for the church. Let's read together 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. Do not quench the spirit Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, even as I begin to preach and open up this text, Lord, I know that There is danger lurking sometimes in the life of the church that the things that we do, the way that we live, might even quench quench your spirit. And so, Lord, we just want to start by acknowledging that we are desperate for your spirit. And we long to hear from you And to be shaped by your word. So we pray that you would do that even now in my weakness. Amen. Amen. When Paul says, don't quench the spirit, he's talking about in the corporate gathering of God's people. This is the context. And so as we approach the text, it makes us think. Do we have any idea... Of the gravity of what actually happens when we gather as the people of God. When the church meets, we experience together the very presence of God through His Spirit. In the Old Testament, God's presence was manifested in invisible ways, and those ways were usually centered on the tabernacle and on the temple. And so they had the The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led them, and there was the Shekinah glory of God that appeared from time to time. And we come to the New Testament, and Christ dies for the forgiveness of sins, the perfect sacrifice to reconcile God and man. And as he dies, the temple curtain is torn in two, the do not enter sign on the holy place is removed. And so in Christ, every believer receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know God's indwelling presence. It is not limited to location, not limited to the holy place in the temple. But we must still be careful. Because in our individualized mindset, we tend to focus only on the individual aspect of God's presence his spirit in us and sometimes neglect the corporate reality what happens when we gather 1 Peter 2 verse 5 Peter writes you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house each and every person in the gathering in the church is a stone in that house 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, singular, and that God's spirit dwells in you? The church together is the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and Christ gives his spirit to the churches, and the spirit mediates the presence of Christ in our midst. It makes what we are doing right now, the gathering of God's people, absolutely unique in all the world. There is nothing like this. There is nothing like this. J.R. Packer said in his great book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit... The Spirit's post-Pentecostal task is essentially that of mediating the presence, word, and activity of the enthroned Christ. It is by grasping this basic New Testament perspective that we get the Spirit in focus. And there are many things that the Spirit does as He mediates Christ's presence among us. He brings unity and peace A peace that is centered on Christ and we are commanded in Ephesians 4 verse 3 to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He teaches and he sanctifies through the ministry of the word. He brings illumination. He causes in our hearts an awareness of the character of God, the glory of Christ, the darkness of our sins. And in all things, the Holy Spirit has, Packer said, a spotlight ministry, pointing to Christ. It's what the Spirit loves to do. Look, look at the risen King. Set your eyes on Him. That's why when you find a church that is overly fascinated with spiritual power and the gospel and and the work and person of Christ are relegated to the side. You, you have cause for worry. Because the Spirit glorifies Christ. And we cannot overestimate, cannot overestimate the importance of His ministry mediating in our presence. In our midst, the very presence of Christ. So this passage brings to our, our attention a sobering reality. That it is very possible... For the church to do things that suppresses and stifles and extinguishes the work of the Spirit of God among us. Is that not a scary thought? In the Old Testament we see it happen for Israel. In Ezekiel 8-10 to the presence of God in stages is withdrawn. As Babylon approaches judgment is coming upon the nation and the glory of God departs from the temple. In Revelation 1 to 3 there is the sobering warning of something similar happening even in a church. We see that Jesus in this section of Revelation has messages for the church, messages for seven churches in Asia Minor. And John sees Jesus walking and he's walking in the midst of these lampstands. These lampstands, what do they represent? They represent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's presence in the churches. He's walking in their midst. And so it's a picture again of of the Spirit mediating Christ's presence among the churches. And and to these churches, there are blessings and warnings. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, speaking to the church at Ephesus, something that is frightening. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is sobering. The most precious thing about the gathering of the people of God is the presence of Christ among us through His Spirit. It ought to be mean more to us than anything else we love about church. And so we want to pay attention to this command. Do not quench the Spirit. Now Paul has a particular situation in mind, something that was happening in the, in the life of this church whereby it seems they were stifling the Spirit's work Something related to the gift of prophecy. And we will need to unpack it a little bit, I believe, to understand and apply this passage well to our context today. But before we get there, we need to be aware as the church that it is possible, there are different ways to quench the Holy Spirit. And so I want to just consider verse 19 a little bit more broadly before we narrow in on this particular situation in verses 20 to 22. And number one, Don't quench the spirit. That's the first heading for today. Don't quench the spirit. You know that you're in a charismatic church when there's a flame somewhere on the the church's logo, right? In the Bible, fire often is a a picture of the spirit. And we see it in the the tongues of fire. We see it in the the lampstands in Revelation. And so this word quench sometimes means literally don't put out the fire fire. Don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit, but it can also mean more generally to suppress, to stifle, to hinder, or to hold something back. The Spirit is a person and we can grieve Him and stifle Him and even quench Him in the life of the church. We do it sometimes through disunity and division. We are not called in the church to sacrifice doctrine for the sake of unity. That is the attitude of some. They say for the sake of unity because we don't want controversy. We don't want to um, exclude anyone. We, We treat doctrine lightly. We don't say that. We love doctrine. But a true love for doctrine leads to a love for people, a real love for the church. The Bible is not a textbook that we use to cut other people down. And our goal isn't just to be found right all the time, we want to see more people worshiping rightly. There is a big difference between the two. There are some people who just love ideologies more than the, the gospel. They live their lives starting idle controversies in the church over peripheral issues and they elevate those issues too highly. They speak without grace or understanding. Paul says there's a danger of becoming puffed up with the knowledge that you have if you don't love people. When we fail to keep the gospel central in our hearts and fail to elevate the sacrifice of our Lord, when pride causes vain controversies and factions in the church, I follow so-and-so no, and I follow so-and-so when it causes divisions or when it leads to unforgiveness in our hearts and bitterness, envy and slander and gossip, when love is sidelined and we stop, as we saw last, a couple of weeks ago, bearing all things and believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things with one another, the Spirit can be quenched among us. The Spirit is quenched as well when there's unrepentant sin in the church, when there is sin in the camp and we're doing nothing about it. We know this is true in our, our private lives, that you can stifle the work of the spirit in your life by harboring and clinging to sin but corporately if there is a culture in the church of failing to deal with sin if the elders are aware of sin and doing nothing about it if we all know that things are going on but we come together and sit here and go through the motions of worship never requiring repentance we quench the holy spirit Jesus said something equally terrifying to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.16, he said, You're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That is serious words. I know I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. It's why we do take church discipline seriously in our church. It is difficult And it's not something that we take lightly. We're not trigger happy about it. But it is a plague of the modern church that no churches don't seem to want to do it anymore. It's hard and it's messy and you don't fill seats by practicing church discipline. But it is possible to fill your church and still to quench the Holy Spirit. If you want to stifle the, the Spirit's work, In our midst, we let sin run rampant and unchecked. The Holy Spirit is quenched as well when we promote false doctrine and a false gospel in the church. So the church inside us, Jesus said in Revelation 3 verse 1, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There are many churches that have the appearance of life and vibrancy and claim to be a hub for the Spirit's power and work, but they are devoid of His presence because they rejoice in false doctrine and in false gospels and have no care for a true understanding of the Word of God. It is relegated to the sidelines. And the truth about Christ becomes lost in everything else that they care about and pursue, these are some of the ways that the Spirit is quenched in the life of the church. When we harbor pride in our hearts over Christ, when we cling to sin over Christ, when we lose sight of the true gospel about Christ, we quench the Spirit of Christ among us. And John Calvin in his commentary said, it's our duty It's our duty to request the Lord to furnish oil for the lamp which He has lit and to keep its wick clean and even enhance it. We want to be a people among whom the Spirit works. We do not want to stifle Him. Number two, Paul focuses on something particular. Don't despise prophecies. Don't despise prophecies. How do we apply this to ourselves and to our church today? This is a hotly debated question. John Calvin says that uh, prophecy is one and the same with preaching in the church. And while I believe that, and I will apply this to preaching, I don't think that we can just jump there because that's not what Paul actually had in mind when he wrote these words. We need to understand the original context so, before I, I apply it, I want to just ask a couple questions and explore these questions together. I'll be honest with you, I do it with trepidation in my heart. I, I was complaining to somebody this week, I've wrestled with these things for 10 years, and now in four days I've got to prepare a sermon and preach on it. I'll do my best, and I ask for grace, and I ask for 10 years' time if I change my mind that you allow me to stand and preach again. What is prophecy? Does it still operate in the life of the church? What what comes to mind for people when we talk about prophecy is a foretelling. Somebody hears from God something that is going to happen in the future. And in Scripture, prophecy certainly involves foretelling. But actually, that was a very rare expression of prophecy. We see it scattered in the writings of the Old and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, in particular, we see the example of Agabus, In Acts chapter 11 and Acts 21, he has these two prophecies telling the future. In the first, he he prophesies a famine that was to come. And in the second passage, he prophesies the arrest of Paul if Paul goes to Jerusalem. So prophecy does uh, involve foretelling, but it wasn't predominantly foretelling the future. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul elaborates on how prophecy functioned in the first century church, and there we see that it was intelligible words from God for the encouragement, consolation, and building up of the church. I found this definition quite helpful, therefore. Richard Blaylock says the gift of prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication rooted in spontaneous divine revelation. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, which results in words that can be attributed to any and all persons of the Godhead, and which therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. It comes from God, it's binding and true. So we need to bear something in mind here as we consider this. Paul is writing letters like 1 Thessalonians and when he wrote to the the Corinthians, he was writing to them in a context when they didn't have what we have in the Bible. They didn't have the Bible as we have it. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had letters that started coming from the apostles. They had fragments of oral tradition written down and so I believe, That God gave the church these foundational roles of apostle and prophet to guide the church in these early stages. Through them, scripture, through the apostles, scripture came to be written down and these supernatural revelatory gifts like the gift of prophecy were there for the formation of their orthodoxy, the doctrines that were central to the faith, there to defend those things. Ultimately, Scripture was canonized into what we have, the Bible and the Old and the New Testaments. And we say today that we do not add to this. We do not subtract from it either. It is the Word of God to us. And so there must be another question then. If we have God's Word in the Bible, is there still place for the supernatural revelatory gifts, gifts like prophecy, and by that i mean direct infallible communication from god i think church history is littered with examples where we we see the danger of of saying that you can have somebody stand and say thus saith the lord and speak divine revelation infallible next to the holy bible i don't believe those two can coexist that's why we hold so strongly to the principle sola scriptura The Bible is the only infallible source of authority for the church. If someone, therefore, is still receiving these infallible revelations from God, how do you hold to Sola Scriptura? And if somebody were to stand up and say to you with authority, Thus saith the Lord, unless they follow that up by reading from the Bible, you can say to them, You you are not Jeremiah, you are not Isaiah. And yet even having said this, I think we need to be more generous than we have been. and Be more careful than we have been. So many people, preachers from, I guess our reform camps have stood up and said, you cannot be a charismatic and hold to sola scriptura and I don't believe that's true either. There are many people we admire and respect as well who we would we would call them continuationists they do believe that these revelatory gifts have continued guys like john piper cj mahaney sam storms wayne grudem whose systematic theology we use on a regular basis they just they don't believe that prophecy today is infallible they believe it's fallible that it's prone to error in fact, many of them would argue that prophecy in the Old Testament should be seen as different to prophecy in the New Testament. Wayne Grudem argues this way in his systematic theology. He says prophecy is, uh, in the New Testament, was telling something that God had brought spontaneously to mind. He speaks of it sort of as like an inner voice that somebody, uh, th- this prophet, has an impression and then has to speak uh, this impression. And in that process of interpretation. He was prone to error. But then I would ask, if so, if prophecy can be so lost in translation, how do we trust it? How could we trust the gift? What gives us confidence to receive it? In fact, how does it function any differently to what we would just call illumination? Or promptings from the Spirit? And more important than that, personally, I don't see any evidence in the New Testament, in the Bible, any reason to believe that the New Testament authors saw prophecy in the New Testament as different to prophecy in the Old Testament? I would argue there is no reason to, to see that. Greg Beale makes this uh, point in his commentary. He said the discernment of prophecies in the New Testament is not picking out truth from error in prophecy, but discerning between true and false prophets or discerning if a prophecy given comes from a true or a false spirit. Beale says, If the gift of apostleship ceased by the end of the first century, then it is possible that the gift of prophet likewise came to an end. If this were the case, which is greatly debated, then it would emphasize all the more that the point of chapter 5, verses 19 to 22, for the modern church is that at God, and this is where we're going to go, it guard the truth of prophetic scriptural revelation and reject false teachings purportedly grounded on this revelation. I believe Beale is right in what he says that Paul was writing to a particular context, here, day and age where they needed this gift for the formation of the for the guiding of the church. But we have scripture in its full, we have the scriptural revelation. And so it is safe to say, I believe, that we can obey this command of Paul by receiving gladly the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word of God. And that happens through preaching, through counseling, through one-on-one exhortation. Even when God maybe lays something on your heart to share with somebody else, that still happens through the Word of God. We don't despise this ministry We are not to hold it in contempt, which is what that word means. In Thessalonica, people were getting up and prophesying, and it seems like it wasn't going down down well in the life of the church. We're not really sure what reason they had for despising prophecy, but there's many reasons that we despise preaching or despise the ministry of the word today, isn't there? Many are suspicious. They are suspicious because of false teachers, False prophets and want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some people have experienced hurt in the church. Maybe maybe been a part of a ministry where there was a a wolf in sheep's clothing. And in that hurt, their hearts become closed off to the ministry of the word. Today, preaching is often held in contempt because of the moral failures of preachers. And it happens, doesn't it? Men are not perfect, but sometimes there are men who shipwreck their lives and their ministry because of moral failure. There are many who mutilate the word of God from the pulpit, and that naturally creates suspicion. This is not unique to our day. This has been throughout the history of the church. John Calvin, again, maybe the preacher of the reformation, Said at, this, at the present day, there are many who are well nigh sickened by the very name of preaching because there are so many stupid, ignorant men who blurt out their worthless brainwaves from the pulpit, while there are other ungodly and irreverent individuals who babble on with their detestable blasphemies. There are many false teachers in our world, but our response is not to despise the preaching or the ministry of the word. Our response is to show discernment. There are some who despise the ministry simply because of the unimpressiveness of the speaker. It's interesting, Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10 speaks against those who reject his message for this very reason. He says, for they say his letters, and speaking about himself, his letters are weighty and strong, But his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That word of no account is actually the same word as the word for despise or hold in contempt in our passage today. So today the ministry of the word is despised simply because people don't like the preacher. Maybe they don't like his personality. Sometimes it's as petty as the way that he dresses or what I really said this morning, Brom, the the jokes that he tells Maybe he tells too many jokes or not enough jokes. People have this preconceived idea of what a preacher should be and look like. And if, if he doesn't fit that mold, close their hearts off to the message instead of soaking in the word of God and gaining what, whatever they possibly can from it, even through the preacher's weakness. Many people have trouble hearing from the word when it directly involves exposing the sin in their hearts. Especially when the one speaking is a, a sinner like they are. Why should I, I listen to you? You're just as messed up as I am. Many will despise preaching and counseling and that one-on-one exhortation because that word actually touches the nerve of sin. Do you start preaching the word of God in a way where it shoots arrows into people's hearts? They won't like it. Many people will not like it and they'll blame the preacher. Who are you to judge me? It's our natural tendency to be defensive when sin is exposed. Whatever the reason for despising the word Paul warns that when the church shuts off its heart, when people in the church shut their hearts to the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, that quenches the Holy Spirit. It is a sobering possibility in the life of any church. Paul is calling for an attitude of eagerness amongst God's people, a readiness to hear from the Lord, to have our hearts drawn to His character, We want to come and say, show us Christ. Let us see the beauty of Christ. Shine a light in my heart that my sin would be exposed and you would bring healing through your surgery in it. So number three, Paul says, don't despise but discern. Don't despise but discern. Do not despise prophecies but test everything. Test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In Acts chapter 17, Paul commends the Bereans. And do you remember what he commends them for? Berea was the the city just down the road from Thessalonica. And he comes to them and he preaches the word to them. And it says that they received it with gladness. What they did was they opened the Old Testament. They opened the Scriptures. They were eager to see if what Paul said lined up with the revelation given. That's the heart that we are to have, the noble heart of the Bereans. That is not the same as a critical spirit. There is a critical spirit that is closed off to everything, that is cold and bitter and closed We're called to discernment. That's different. It functions even with a heart that is receptive and eager. I want to hear from the voice of the good shepherd. I want to hear what is good. I want to cling to it and hold fast to that as real spiritual food. We are to be hungry for the word of God. We aren't just here to have our heads informed. We want our hearts to be challenged and changed. We want to love him more and know him more. Do you come to church asking for the Spirit to do that work in your heart, in the hearts of those around you? That should be our prayer. I ask that that would be your prayer for me even while I preach. Holy Spirit, do your work. Holy Spirit, work through that babbling buffoon's weakness and do your work. And at the same time, we test everything. There are too many in the modern church who will just accept anything, accept everything. We live in a a celebrity culture where we elevate the, the man. As long as he's funny enough, charismatic enough, we'll accept what he says without thinking. We are to test. The New Testament gives us different ways to test. We are to ask, is what is being said consistent with the prior revelation we have Is it consistent with the Word of God? And we intentionally in our church try to to fight against the culture of naivety in the church by engaging in expository preaching, opening up the Word of God week by week, passage for passage and letting it, it speak, even in those weeks where we would rather avoid the text. We fight that culture as well by being devoted ourselves in our private lives to the Word of God. We want to develop theological radars. I want to be able to see and know false teaching out there when it comes across my path. Is that your heart? We ask of the word we hear. Does it glorify Christ and elevate the truth about His person and work? The Holy Spirit loves to glorify Christ. Preaching should glorify Christ. Counsel should glorify Christ. Exhortation should glorify Christ. It should not be man-centered. And it should be focused on the true Christ. John says in 1 John 4, 1-2, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In his writing in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, My preaching is focused on the gospel of Christ. I, I know nothing but the death and the resurrection of Christ. Like the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, do we glorify Christ in our words? Thirdly, we should ask, What about the character of the one speaking? Matthew seven, fifteen to twenty, Jesus said, We are to be aware of false prophets, and he said, You will know them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Again, why is it the case that in the in the church so often we seem to care more about the personality and the humor, the wit, the charisma of the preacher than his character? It is a sickness in the church. We do with pastors sometimes what we we do with celebrities. We put them on a pedestal and then we ignore and excuse their faults. Not saying the pastor is perfect. Definitely not perfect. But we quench the spirit of God in the church when we say that character and holiness is less important than how engaging and likable the man is. Pastors are flawed, but for the health of the church, it is vital that shepherds are being shepherded themselves by Christ. Finally, was what was said in that word edifying to the body? This is Paul's test in 1 Corinthians 14. Does the word spoken lead to a clearer picture of God, a clearer picture of the gospel and the Christian life, or does it lead to confusion? Confusion and chaos in the church? Does the word spoken promote love for God and holiness? Does it drive people to the gospel, to put their hope in Christ, or does it drive them to put their hope in man? Does it build up the church into full maturity in Christ? We live in a confused world where man is the center of all things, and we are given the word of God that we would be different, that we would be countercultural the people who love their Father and follow Christ and walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And that means being desperate for spiritual food, being able to recognize the false and avoid it. As a people who gather and take seriously and love more than anything else Christ's glory and presence among them is that our heart as a church As I close, I want to just drive this home for you just with a few questions to gauge where you are at today. Are you living today in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit of God? Are you treating sin lightly in your life? There are things you know you need to obey, but that day of obedience is not today. One day I'll obey. Are you ignoring the work of illumination and the work of conviction when he brings it to bear in your heart? Are you gathering as one of those living stones of Christ's spiritual house, eager, a member of the body of Christ, or are you only here when it's convenient to you? Do you harbor bitterness in your heart when you come I will not speak to that person. I'll speak about that person behind their back. Leave your offering at the altar. Christ says, find your brother and make it right. Then come back. Are you hungry for God's word? Because Christ is precious to you. And do you want to know him more? Now I know that this this sermon has been a bit of a heavier one heavier when it comes to teaching and just the the nature of the topic, quenching the Holy Spirit. So I just want to close by saying this, that we serve a gracious Savior and even right now the Spirit is eager to embrace and to forgive. To forgive whatever it is, is that sin in your life. He's eager to to love. So we are going to sing in a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together a song. Addressed to the Holy Spirit, and I hope that we can make this song our plea, even as we make it a confession in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we love you and we gather as the people of God, week in and week out, because we are eager together to experience your presence. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you do in our lives, in our hearts. We thank you for the work that you did for us in salvation, in opening our eyes to the beauty of Christ, so that the word of God would make sense to us, we would understand it clearly. We thank you that you've enabled in us a love for you, a love for our Father. Do not let our hearts grow cold. May it never be said of us that we are a church that has lost its first love. We do not want to quench you. We want to embrace you and embrace your work. So bring conviction. Don't stop challenging us. And Lord, even where there are things in the life of the church that are not pleasing to you, I pray that you would reveal those things and shape us more. Help us to love you, we pray. Amen.